1: Tamara Thomas, Editor-in-Chief of UrbanHealthToday.com, part of the DocWire Family of Medical News sites, and I want to thank you for tuning in to Urban Health Weekly. Our goal each week is to keep you informed of the latest in health and medical news right from today's headlines. It's time to empower yourself with open conversations about your medical care with news that matters to you. So are you ready? Let's get started. Hi, I'm Tamara Thomas, Editor-in-Chief at Urban Health Today, and I'm speaking with Bronwyn Spiro founder and CEO of Force Therapeutics, a platform that delivers video-based education and exercise to patients. She's also a physical therapist, and she's here today to talk about the challenges disadvantaged populations face in accessing orthopedic surgical care, the consequences of delayed care, and expanding access to care using virtual tools. So thank you for speaking with me today, Bronwyn.
2: Thanks, Tamara. So good to be here.
1: Awesome. So let's get started. Can you tell us about your background and your work?
2: Sure. So I'm actually a physical therapist by training, and I spent um, almost 20 years uh, in the clinical space treating patients, uh, all types of patients in all types of settings. And really came to deeply understand the challenges my own patients were having with recovery and rehab, um, as well as my own challenges around data um, and really getting visibility into the patient's journey and um, you know where where they were in when they were outside of my clinic, how they were feeling, how they were doing, how they were coping. Um, And so you know, in my most recent clinical role, was running a private practice our patient sports medicine practice in New york city um i decided that with the advent of technology and you know smartphones becoming much more ubiquitous that this was an opportunity to explore how we might introduce a technology to improve the patient experience but also improve my own access to understanding their journey, their recovery, their data. Um, and so really started force um, almost like a side project, a bit of a passion project um, to help my patients improve that experience.
1: Those are always good. Can you give us a, passion projects? I mean, those are always when they come from the, the heart. Um, can you give us an overview of the existing disparities in the orthopedic space? We don't really hear a lot about that. Which groups are most affected?
2: Well, I think everyone's affected. So musculoskeletal um, injuries and incidents actually impact more than 60% of the entire adult population. Um, And, you know, if you think about it, most everyone, you know, has a back injury or knee injury or something that impacts their ability to live their life and impacts their ability to do the things they love, play the sport they want to play, go to work, you know, um, pick up their kids. And it's also the leading cost driver of global healthcare spending. So it impacts everybody equally. The disparities come where we think about the patient's ability to access and understand the care that they need to get better from that MSK injury. Um, And then also, um, you know, some people are less able to access that care in a timely manner and that impacts how quickly the intervention, you know, can kind of take effect and obviously earlier intervention leads to a better result. So it's really just that access piece that um, is where the disparity lies in my opinion.
1: So as far as access, uh what sort of lack of access are you seeing? That's
2: such a good question and you know it's it really can vary but access I broadly define as access physical access right so patients that cannot get to care due to transportation or weather or um, a good bus route or you know time you know so that's like physical access they can't get there then there's um, economic access. They can't afford the care they need. They can't afford their co-pays. They can't afford the Uber ride because there's no bus service. Um, so, you know, so there's that economic access piece. And then there's this intellectual access, which I think is so important and underrepresented in every type of healthcare disparity conversation, which is, you know, not everybody is kind of educated in a way that they understand their body not everybody has the same level of education not everybody understands the same language in the same way and healthcare jargon can be very confusing so if a person does not understand the type of care or the information that's being given to them that is an access issue. They will not be able to create the type of care program that they need to improve. And so access takes on many, many um, kind of personalities. And for me, I really think it's so important that we have to think about all of them um, because it's just, it's, it's, it really has a huge impact on overall health for patients. You know, if they don't, address the MSK issues, um, that leads to other potentially more, um, you know, uh, well, definitely other different types of um, morbidity and mortality, diabetes, um, uh, high BMI patients, you know, inability to go to work or, you know, um, create a um, a paycheck, you know, so, so it really has very far reaching effects, um, you know, so lack of access can really be kind of the, in the center of multiple um, healthcare issues for many patients.
1: And MSK, that means musculoskeletal, right?
2: That's correct. And it's just, it's like all, any Joint, muscle, uh, you know, tendon injury—anything that affects the physical body—is kind of under the MSK umbrella.
1: So, in your white paper, you talked about the low acceptance rates of Medicaid and Medicare among orthopedic surgeons, which I, I—that was—that was shocking to me. I didn't know that. Why is that?
2: So, you know, I think. In a lot of cases, surgeons feel that their reimbursement rate, as well as the documentation burden placed upon them by CMS, are not sustainable or advantageous to their bottom line. And, you know, if they can do the same surgery and get paid better and quicker um, with less paperwork, they oftentimes have no choice but to stop accepting Medicare and Medicaid as payment for their services. Um, and this this impacts especially, um, you know, surgeons in private practices, providers in private practices who have large and growing expenses that are required to run their practices, you know, me- uh, liability insurance, staff costs, security, um, health benefits for their staff. And so a lot of times they're running a relatively low margin business and so it may not make sense for them to accept the insurances that you know create you know barriers to their reimbursement um, and their bottom line Um, and the other point is really that CMS um, the largest payer in the world is very highly regulated and you know it's like um turning a large ship if you have an ocean liner you kind of turn the steering wheel slowly and the ship turns very slowly. So less ability for them to be agile and turn on a dime, whereas some of the commercial payers and the um, self-insured employers are able to actually um, be a little bit more dynamic um, in their approach to reimbursement. So I think that's really where that comes from. And um, it's, um, you know, it's unfortunate, but it's a business decision that a lot of practices just have to make.
1: You know, and then that ends up affecting the elderly and the underprivileged, obviously, because, uh, you know, a large number of them have Medicare. Now, do you know um, if the managed Medicare, because a lot of it is managed care now. Do you, do you are you finding that, um, or have you seen in your experience with this, have you seen the any differences in terms of like, well, we'll accept certain types of managed care versus others, or is it just blanket?
2: I think it treatment? differs by market and by care plan. And I am not familiar enough with all of the ramifications, but in my mind, it just creates an additional blocker, an additional access challenge, you know, and in a world where we want to really reduce um, barriers to care as much as possible, you know, it, adding insurance coverage as another access barrier just doesn't seem like we're going in the right direction.
1: You know, it's funny because um, I broke my wrist um, several years ago, maybe a Six years ago, and um, I went to an orthopedic uh, an orthopedic surgeon's um, office, and his office was jam packed, Um, and uh, they couldn't all be. Or maybe that's just a New York thing. I don't know. And in any of that, um, it's just shocking to hear that number. That it's such a high number when we're not taking Medicaid and Medicare when. Uh in my mind, it seems like these offices are like filled to to the brim.
2: <clears throat> and then, and yeah. That's a good point. I think that the the need for orthopedic care is large and growing. Um, so there's no shortage of patients, which means that providers are able to make that choice, you know?
1: Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Mm-hmm. Do you think that uh, government intervention is warranted or would help this or...?
2: I definitely think so. I, what I, I, you know, I'm a provider, so I take everything from the clinician's perspective. But, you know, my opinion is that when the government makes changes, and they do need to recognize how healthcare delivery is changing, they need to create and prioritize incentives that um, benefit those that are providing the care. So the providers from the surgeons, the nurses, the PTs, the PAs, those people providing the care really understand how things need to change um, and, you know, should really be, you know, central to that conversation. Um, and so at the same time as, as you know, there's new shifts uh, in healthcare delivery, there's also an incredible opportunity that's in front of us, which is, access to data so you know for example cms which is that huge the largest um, payer in the world actually um has issues you know being very dynamic in the way they approach reimbursement they also have an opportunity in the fact that they have access and visibility across these huge data sets and what's so interesting and exciting in this new changing world that we live in is we can use that data to improve care delivery um, but I, it has to be centered on the providers and um you, you know so that's i think for me that's just the you know it, there should be change it should be progressive um but it has to take into account the ones that should be benefiting the most in a way are the ones that are actually delivering that care
1: So do you think, do you see um, a space for um, value-based care as helping move these um, disparities, moving to a better place, moving across the goal line?
2: Definitely. I think there is a lot of um, waste in the system and there's a lot of overutilization of services that are not actually proven to create a better outcome um and to be honest the um the focus on understanding outcomes of care is recent and all driven by value based care so i think it's it's absolutely imperative to think about the end result and the quality of care delivered in order to um, mandate how care can be delivered and should be delivered, um, but it's really removing that unnecessary overutilization. Where I think value-based care um, is, you know, super valuable and hundred percent focused on on the right things. It's just more, you know, the concept is good. It's the execution that I think is, you know, still needs some some work. <laughs>
1: And you lay out some suggestions in your paper for how to um, how access to care should be approached to promote greater health equity. So I encourage people to you know take a look at their paper. Disadvantaged patients are also experiencing complications and readmissions after some procedures. Um, can you talk about what's happening there?
2: Definitely. And. And really, it's all about access to education and the right education. So I can give you an example. And just to illustrate the point here that um, one of the most common um, complications after a total joint replacement surgery, for example, a knee replacement, is a surgical side infection. And that is something that's very preventable. Um, But... Oftentimes patients are sent home from the hospital without adequate information and education around how to care for that wound so that it does not get infected. And this is again where some of those um, disparities come into play and social determinants of health are such an important component of thinking about how we educate patients. Um, so, if a patient's well educated in how to care for their wound, how to you know prevent that infection, um they may never have an infection, they won't go back to the emergency room, and that whole episode of care will be less expensive with a better outcome. And that's value-based care in a nutshell, right? Yeah. So really, in my mind, the ability to educate patients in a way that is digestible by them, um is a very important factor that we all need to think about and we need to execute against in order for um, true care to be delivered um, in today's healthcare paradigm.
1: So, so what does that education look like? So I'm a patient. Right. And- so
2: there's multiple considerations that you have to so for example uh, um you know force is a platform that educates patients when they're out of the purview of their provider so before surgery getting them prepared helping them understand what they're about to go through and then after surgery in a stepwise um sequence all the things that they'll need to know as they recover from that surgery so the education needs to be in a format that the patient can understand and and relate to so for example video is very very powerful we use video as our main medium of education and it can't be you know 90 minutes long really what we have to do and it's, you know, and it's a science and an art at the same time, we have to understand, you know, a patient's um, attention span for this type of very intense information might be 90 seconds. So we have to figure out, well, how do we get the most pertinent information into a format that they can understand in the first 90 seconds of the video? And then how do we make sure that they get to come back to it again and again and again? Because again, like that, you have to think about the retention piece of uh, absorbing education. So so that's just kind of one of the, the things that we have to think about. The other thing is um, obviously language and education level. So whatever information we're delivering needs to be accessible to whatever language that patient speaks. And it can't be their second language because remember, healthcare terminology is tricky so if you're English as a second language, there's a lot that you could miss in an education video. Um, so, of course, we um, have all of our videos and our whole platform is actually available in Spanish and other languages so that we know that the patients can actually truly understand it. Um, and then the ability to give that patient confidence that the education that they're receiving is coming from their own care provider. Um, And I had this challenge myself when I was in practice, because my patients would come to me and show me a YouTube video or a, a WebMD article. And those may be great videos and great articles, but for somebody completely different than they were. So for me, a very important piece of education is making sure that it comes from the actual providers that provided your care.
1: But the, the videos come from the
2: providers. Good question. So we, um, at Force, we make sure that what we're saying is exactly what the providers would say. And we have, you know, um, research behind everything that we have in our system, but it's configurable. So for the most part, a provider will look at the the set of uh, videos that will be delivered to their patients and say, I want this one at three weeks this one at five weeks, this one, I want to change this last sentence. So it's about 90% there. And, you know, it's not, it shouldn't be too variable by the way, because variation increases cost as well. Um, different conversation, but also important, but we really want to make sure that once the patient receives that information, it's the right information that has been blessed and um, kind of signed off on by their own provider care team and, um, So, you know, so there's a lot that goes into creating that experience, but it really has to be very um, thoughtful around what can the patient access, what can the patient understand, what is the right kind of level to pitch this information in, and then engaging a care provider if that patient is still unable to receive that information, uh, making sure the care providers engage before the surgery so that they also know what to expect and how to support their loved one. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of um, elements, but luckily the ubiquity of technology and the ability to actually deliver this type of information, I think is, you know, transformational to how patients recover today.
1: What kind of patient feedback do you get that tells you that this is um, working and effective?
2: That's such a great question. And, you know, when you develop a technology like ours, it's an enterprise level technology. So it's, you know, very robust. And we constantly poll our patients, you know, give, you know, we do an NPS score. We ask them if they say less than 10 out of 10. And we call them and say, well, what didn't you like about this? How can we improve your experience? And we have a lot of data, even just from knowing when a patient engages and when they fall off the platform. And so we use all of that rich data. So it's qualitative and quantitative data to inform our product development. And it's never done. It's never static. We're always thinking about iterating and improving that patient experience and everything for us, at least as a company is patient centric. So it's all about that patient experience because we understand very well that if the patient engages and is has a positive experience, their outcome will be positive.
1: Yeah, exactly. So disadvantaged patients are also... Um they're not coming back for the care. There's there's the the matter of delayed care. So can you talk about some of the consequences of these delays in care? Like, What's going on there? Is it comorbidities? Is it they're not comfortable with the provider? What's what's going on?
2: So there's often an education gap um, and there's the fear is a big thing. Anxiety. What does this mean for me? How will I you know, how will it turn out? Um, and that's really an an important aspect of educating patients in a way that they understand what's about to happen to them. And some of our providers use our platform to actually um, have their conversation with their patients and say, out of my 150 patients that I've seen so far this year that had exactly the same procedure as you, you know, 149 of them are now walking and normal and no pain and, you know, and the one patient, you know, had a problem, but here's how we fixed it. So it's really encouraging that patient provider communication and showing the patient data and information that gives them Comfort and you know reduces their level of anxiety going in so that they don't delay and delay and think of excuses why not to have a surgery that can be incredibly impactful and improve their quality of life.
1: And how does force counter this, these delays and care? Do you send out nudges, notifications, or
2: absolutely so. We have a lot of um, tricks and tools we use. We have a lot of gamification wow. so that patients get rewards if they do what they're supposed to do. Um, when they reach a goal, for example, they get a big confetti on their screen and th- so they're constantly being encouraged to do to follow their plan, their care plan, and to do the things that their care team is recommending. Um, and so it's this constant encouragement, positive encouragement, uh, constant engagement, um, and, you know, making sure that they're, um, you know, that we use the data that we have to support their care experience. Um, and I'll give you an example, you know, patients are typically very afraid of pain. Um, and that's normal. Um, but they worry that after surgery, they're going to be- be in much more pain and it's going to be intolerable and so being able to show them you know de-identified data obviously but you know these pain graphs that patients have where you know they may have been a nine or ten out of ten before the surgery and sure for a few days after the surgery they're going to have some pain that's normal but then you'll see how this graph goes down and down and down until you know two one or two weeks later, you're at a three out of ten or a two out of ten. And that is really when when patients are presented with data, it helps them really understand the impact that this is going to have for them. So that really helps engage them in the process, helps them accountable. If you do these things, if you follow this plan, you can do really well. Um, and hearing that from a provider, I think is the most powerful thing. We're just the conduit for that um, message. You know, we allow the provider to share that with the data behind it. Um, but it really has to come from the provider and not from a anonymous source. Um, and and that really helps the patients have a positive experience.
1: I'm curious. what happens? Um, what happens in a situation where there's a a medical desert so there's no orthopedic surgeon for miles and miles maybe your entire county or you know parts of your your state um is that something force can step in and help with or um or no
2: absolutely i mean we can't do the surgery remotely wow. <laughs> but there you we can absolutely take care of everything separate and apart from that so we create the preparation the education they need to get to the point where they have the surgery and that's everything from certain uh, medications they have to stop they have to Um, prepare their skin in a certain way with, you know, uh, antibacterial wipes. Oftentimes they have to, some surgeons recommend they drink a a drink to help them recover better. So we take care of all of that um, so that when they arrive at the surgery, they're ready. They know what to expect. And then they're in that surgery, a couple of hours oftentimes. um, And then they go home and everything else is housed within the platform. So education on you know, how to care for your wound, as I said, what exercises to do, what things to avoid, how much should I be walking at this stage, what device should I be using, uh, what should food should I be eating, you know, all of that is easily taken care of in an interactive technology like force, um, and so we really build that holistic care plan that, you know, it can't just deal with one aspect of recovery, it's, it's the whole patient that has to be managed, including things like, you know, the importance of sleep and, you know, calm, relaxation, meditation, anything that the patient could be experiencing, they can actually get from the platform without having to travel 45 minutes. And interesting, we did a study with one of our um health systems that has a very rural population I think the average um, time that a patient has to drive to get to the main hospital is 45 minutes um, and some live as far out as two or three hours and our research showed that the patients that live the furthest from their anchor hospital so those living three hours were actually the most engaged in the technology platform Um, and they just understood that if they did everything that was set up for them to do, they wouldn't have to come back to the hospital. And so that was a motivation in and of itself for them.
1: So you work in concert with um, with the providers always. Um, do you ever have um, PT-led teams or does that, is that something?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, a couple of times in our In our care team structure, um, the PTs are the ones leading the navigation of that patient. So they understand exactly what needs to be done, what needs to be tweaked. We also allow for real-time telemedicine visits. So if a PT, for example, needs to actually see how a patient's doing directly from the platform, they click a button and they can launch that live visit, which, by the way, in some cases now is reimbursable by Medicare. So they are, you know, coming to the table, um, to some degree. Um, but, you know, I think that that's really the ultimate combination of this asynchronous, but synchronous communication, um, that is really so powerful to help patients feel supported and get them better.
1: So circling back to the Medicare and the Medicaid, uh, gap in this, um, I'm just wondering, so if the, if the surgeon does not accept the Medicare and the Medicaid, um, you all, you obviously have patients that are falling into this gap. How does, how does force, um, help with that, with, with, with bridging that gap? So
2: that's a great question. You know, I think if a patient ends up having a surgery and paying it paying for it out of pocket, which is certainly not a good or ideal situation, but in the case where, you know, they don't have outside coverage, um, then all the additional expenses are taken care of. So they wouldn't have a copay for PT. They wouldn't have to drive or travel, which is an added expense. They wouldn't have to take time off work, which is an added expense. Um, And potentially by using this platform with this um, protocolized care plan, they could potentially, you know, get better without leveraging any other um, healthcare dollars and um, still get to a good result.
1: In your paper, you talked about virtual physical therapy and how it can help patients um, improve outcomes. Can you um, elaborate on that?
2: Yeah, I think you know a lot of times surgery the outcome of a surgery depends a lot on the aftercare so what actual how the patient um becomes mobile how their range of motion progresses how much they're able to strengthen their joint or their knee um whatever the the um uh, surgery was So virtual, so physical therapy is key in getting that patient better because it teaches patients really how to move, how to exercise, how to strengthen their joints and how to improve their range of motion and and return to normal activity. But in the case where patients are unable to actually get to an inpatient physical therapy clinic or, uh, you know, an outpatient physical therapy clinic or get physical therapy, to come to the home they can do most of the stuff is really doable um, through an exercise program and so what we do at force is we deliver the care they need the exercise plan um, through these video based timed you know video based exercise protocols um and it's designed to progress as the patient progresses um and again we always like to work with with our provider organizations to understand exactly what type of care they want to be delivering, and oftentimes we're working very closely with a the physical therapy department to create those plans of care, um, and then you know they can pop in there and adjust them and um, intervene as needed. But you know that virtual piece is very very important, um, so that patients become active quicker, and that really improves their recovery.
1: So does the orthopedic surgeon practice sign up for FORCE? How do do you access that? Yeah,
2: Yeah, so we sell the platform, which is sold on a per-care team license to health systems, private practices, um, um, you know, um, ASCs, which are ambulatory surgical centers. Anytime where care is being delivered by providers, they can engage with us purchase the platform and and then use it um, with their entire patient population. Um, So they basically purchase the license and that gives them the license to deliver the care that they would have delivered, but do it virtually.
1: That sounds amazing. And and what kind of coverage do you have across the U.S.? Um,
2: We are in um, about 70 centers around the country, um, and we typically... You know um, started out with a lot of academic medical centers just because they um, are you know oftentimes thought leaders and they're kind of thinking through data and research and this platform obviously delivers that Um, but we've grown a lot and we now work with any kind of musculoskeletal provider whether it's a private practice um, focused on orthopedic care or an ambulatory surgical center that is really for them it's really important that their patients come in and leave on the same day because there's no overnight opportunity so we really have to take care of that pre-operative and post-operative patient experience understanding that they don't have a lot of time inside of a hospital setting
1: now are you able uh, are you able to off the top of your head and if you can't answer this that's okay Are you able to quantify um, the improvement in average patient outcomes using a platform like Force in concert with orthopedic surgeons?
2: It's a really good question. And the reason that that's a hard one to answer is pre Force, there were no real benchmarks that our providers had necessarily because they either didn't have a good way to um, collect those outcomes or they were doing it on paper or they were not getting enough of a a cohort size to actually benchmark their own outcomes. So we can tell you where they are, but we can't tell you where they've come from, Ah. um, which is an an interesting problem. And to me, just the fact that they are now collecting through our platform, 90% 90% of patient reported outcomes is an incredible feat in and of itself. So that is some kind of a benchmark, right? From zero to 90%, or in some cases, you know, 15% to 90%. So that's pretty impressive. Um, but I think that the the really good question, which is the one you asked is, you know, how much has this helped um, improve outcomes? And I think... You know, just from our own anecdotal experience, um, it's it's night and day, and especially um, understanding how patients are much more engaged, much more accountable, and they're empowered to do the things that they need to do to get better. and it's that in and of itself is a much more um holistic and and um, valuable care experience.
1: Well, what are your, what are your providers saying about it? Is it lightening the load for them? Is it making them easy to manage their patients or what kind of feedback are you getting from the providers?
2: You know, it's become in many cases, their operational, you know, kind of scaffolding. So a lot of our providers will say, we can't do what we do anymore without force. And they rely on it um, as a construct in how they care for patients. So it's really become a vital part of how they practice. Um, So that's the kind of the infrastructure piece. The other piece that they love is the access to data because they get on their dashboards, they can access their patient's data just with one click of a button. And that for some providers is very um, eye-opening. Some of them have never seen this type of data before. And it's not just the outcome measures. It's the pain, the sleep, the activity levels, the patient satisfaction, you know, patients write all sorts of love letters about their care experience and, you know, for providers to see that is very powerful. Um, And then I think the third very, very important thing in today's today's day and age with what we're facing with workforce challenges is the ability to scale their care teams. Um, So, you know, giving their nurses and their navigators and their PAs tools that make them more efficient in their day-to-day. A lot of our providers, our organizations are losing nurses. It's really hard to um, replenish those last FTEs. And so really being able to reduce the burden of care on their nurses and their physician extenders, their administrators, their um, medical assistants, um, that to them is really, really valuable. Um, and if you think about it, every phone call that a nurse had to make that used to take 30 minutes is now an automated outreach through a platform. Even that of its, in and of itself is incredibly valuable as you think about how patients and people spend their time every day.
1: But patients are still able to, to talk to a live person. Yeah,
2: Absolutely. Um, but I think what is happening is because we know typically the questions that patients ask, we can v- be very preemptive and predictive in the type of information we deliver. So if a patient we, we know that a patient is going to ask, they want to call their nurse and say, my, my knee looks really bruised. Is that normal? And what we can say is, here's a video explaining to you how that why that's happening, how it's normal, how you can expect that to change over time. And suddenly their need to call their nurse disappears. Mm. They have the answers to their questions right there.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. This sounds amazing. Um, you know, I hope more, um, orthopedic surgeons take this up and I really hope the government steps in and does something about helping with more coverage because, I do worry about those populations not being able, because of the comorbidities you talked about, not being able to you know get access to this care because it sounds like without the provider, it almost kind of sort of doesn't happen, right? Yeah
2: yeah. I think um, you know using technology for good, um and we think about force for good, you know, we've got a, Platforms called Force, Force Therapeutics. Um, So using technology as a force for good is really, you know, the way of the future. And as long as it's done in a way that's responsible based upon data and outcomes um, and provider driven, I think, you know, it's a win-win. So hopefully more and more um, surgeons, as you say, and certainly more and more payers, are paying attention to these trends and are actually incentivizing um, this behavior in the right way.
1: And hopefully, as as value based care um, becomes uh, much more prevalent, we'll see more changes and and um, more quantifiable. Like you're already leading the charge, right? But with value based care, um, sort of you know taking up the fight. I think there'll be much more data available to really, you know, you, could, you can then take this, you know, to the government and say, hey, this is what we're able to accomplish. Um, will you help us? Will you help us with this fight? and Clara, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your work. And thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. This was a really um, encouraging and edifying.
2: Thank you so much, Tamara. Great great chatting with you.
1: Thanks. Thanks for listening to Urban Health Weekly today. I hope you'll join me and my friends next week so you can stay informed and inspired to take control of your health. See you next time.